you know, I think I'm gonna get a an arm, a new arm, because mine's just a bit shitty and <laughs> can't really hold this I, microphone I, I properly. I thought you meant like an actual arm. I'm like, <laughs> uh, yeah, <laughs> one of my arms is a bit <laughs> shitty. Like, that's not as good as the other one. <laughs> yeah, might go down to the hospital and see if they've yeah. recently <laughs> amputated any that I can I can pick up. And yeah. just, just like get it and take take the parts I need out of it. <laughs> no, it's um like really in need of a wrist bone. <laughs> what what arm do you have now? Just some crappy one I got off Amazon. Um, it came in like when I originally started podcasting, I was using a one of those what is it like blue blue snowball I think it was. Um, Blue snowball, blue blue something. It was like a big, like sort of round retro looking one, um, and that's like a big condenser microphone, and it just plugs in US using USB, and it's really easy. Yeah. And so I used that for a little while, and then I upgraded to like a proper audio setup. Mm-hmm. So I got a like audio interface, and uh, it's still a cheap condenser microphone, and then that came with this this arm as well um, and then I've a couple of months ago now I upgraded to the Rode Procaster which is kind of a big beefy front address microphone so yeah I yep. do need a new one a new arm at some point just because it it literally barely holds it because <laughs> um, it, it's quite a heavy mic yeah yeah so uh, yeah I'll be getting one uh, at some point this year hopefully yeah cool I um today I just wanted to touch on have you have you seen the saudi i think it's called aramco aramco ipo yeah i haven't watched how the stocks traded but i i was watching the deal as it was as it was going along like stop start for the last few years uh it's it's massive because i knew nothing about it until one of the guys was talking to me last night from over there who lives there and he's like you know contemplating whether he was going to buy into it he was talking to about it and I looked it up and it's $2 trillion. Well, not currently, I don't think, but it did at one point hit $2 trillion market cap. Yeah, no, it's massive. Um, I think only a few of the shares have been floated. Yeah, there was only 1.5%. Uh, I think, yeah, it's like it raised some, like $26 billion, I think. Um, and so, it yeah, it raised a, a tiny little amount. Um, I don't know quite what the rationale behind listing it was i've got um, i mean i could put my tinfoil hat on and say yeah um i don't know just with like the switch from oil to other energy sources in the future potentially people wanting to cash in um, that's possible yeah I, I just thought it was a little strange that they'd be listing but i mean it's state-owned so yeah that's the thing too it's like backed by the state so i don't really know what what they're doing but yeah i just thought it was a little strange that they'd be doing that yeah i think something like 20 different banks are trying to bid for it and obviously it being so big the fees would have just been extraordinary Mm. so yeah i don't know what quite what the um what the uh rationale behind the listing was um but it yeah it fell apart several times and then came back and fell apart again and yeah, well, I saw like there was a few a articles that it was like it's coming in November or whatever, and then I think they eventually listed in December. Um, yeah, 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 and that it's been going on for years, sort of ever since I've been following the markets. Oh, uh, right, okay. It's been bubbling and like start stop sort of thing, and it's now finally listed. Um, but I like I wonder if it's more of a political thing, getting the banks tied up within. Yeah, okay. Within Saudi Aramco. Yeah. Getting a certain bank side up in there. It could be that. Like, I mean, 1.5% of the shares have been listed, so it's literally nothing. Yeah. Uh, I think this is one of the misconceptions that people had when it did originally list. Um, I, I remember, like, sort of the, when, it, when it happened and people doing their, people talking about their podcasts and whatnot, and they're saying, oh, I don't know why, like, there's such a huge company. Why would they need to raise money and buy listing their shares? kind of under the assumption that an IPO necessarily means that you list 100% of the company. Mm. 
Yeah. Uh, when that's yeah, that's that's far from the, tr- the the reality of the situation. Like they've listed barely anything. So yeah, I, it could be not necessarily money laundering, but it could be a a way of getting money into and out of Aramco in yep. some form. Now that it's it's listed publicly, um, and we have to it, it's listed on the Saudi exchange as well. So it's not like it's listed on the NYSE. Yeah. So it's not going to be subject to super stringent rules on disclosures and whatnot and <laughs> yeah so yeah it's kind of one of those ones like i was like oh that's interesting that i finally went through and then moved on um <laughs> definitely not going to be buying any of those shares yeah that was the thing too he was he was asking about um how he would go about actually buying shares over there and i was like well you got to find a trusted trusted broker and um you know ideally you would want to get into international shares. You wouldn't want to like stay local yeah. over there. Um, yeah, but it's I just, don't know. Quite, I'm it's, sure there's stringent regulations and all those sorts of things. Uh, definitely, it's definitely in Saudi Arabia as well. It just seems very odd. Yeah. Um, anyway, um, I thought we'd talk about the Iran situation. Mm-hmm. Um, have you been following it much? I saw it was f- like dying down a little bit but other than that no yeah so the basically for people who somehow haven't found out what's what's happening here uh was it i think last weekend the iran the u.s sorry launched an attack on baghdadi international airport that killed qasem Soleimani, who's a very high up military and political figure in Iran um, and purportedly as uh, because he was a target, he was a um, a terrorist and there's certainly evidence to that fact. Um, he backed several sort of militia groups around the world. He orchestrates a lot of attacks on or orchestrates a lot of groups that could potentially attack Americans and who are hostile to Americans. But on the other hand, he's also assisted America in in certain cases, uh, specifically in the fight against ISIS. He was an assistance to America, um, and he is a higher political figure. Um, And then there was sort of no doubt in anyone's minds that this was an act of war when it happened. Uh, There was a whole drama about how the White House handled the communication surrounding it, which if you... If you want to have a um, a little bit more of it, hear a little bit more of a discussion about that, we did talk about it last week. Uh, but the effectively, it it became a political argument almost instantly. Um, and I've been trying to sort of take in things on both sides of the political political spectrum. Um, and yeah, pretty pretty quickly, it became a, a shouting match between. Republicans and Democrats about if you should be sad that this guy's dead or if he was actually a bad guy or whatever. And the the idea that it became, oh, the, the fact that it's an act of war got shrouded pretty quickly. Um, but then nevertheless, the Iranians did retaliate, uh, I think on Tuesday during the night. And yes, they yes. Um, fired ballistic missiles at, two air bases in Iraq uh, that house U.S. troops. And I don't think there were any any uh, losses for the U.S., uh, but it is kind of significant that the ballistic missiles were used here and instead of something like rockets. Because ballistic missiles are very uh, accurate. They can hold quite big payloads. Um, so it's the difference just the size yeah of, so the, the size the or... accuracy of what you can hit um, they're generally just considered a higher class of weapon okay and so the use of them is just it's a the optics of it is important uh, because ballistic missiles I mean you scale them up and you get intercontinental ballistic missiles so they're they're in a class that sort of is is quite serious to to use, whereas rockets, I guess, are a little bit more amateur. 
um, and so it's it's significant that they use them, um, and it's the first time that they've been fired on the U.S. or U.S.-related uh, targets from Iran since about the 1980s. So it's a it's a big step forward, um, and it's it's no doubt a retaliation. Uh, oh, definitely. Yeah. For the the attack on Soleimani. Um, it's not like something that's kind of come through a proxy group and there's questioning whether Iran was behind this or not. It's just, it's very clearly that they were retaliating. Um, and then the, so that sort of happened and everyone was kind of scared for a little while there about what, what was going to happen now. Um, because at that point we sit on kind of a precipice of like, Either we de-escalate this whole situation now or the U.S. retaliates yeah. again and then Iran retaliates and that's how you end up in a war. Um, and so what, what seems to have happened, and I, I'll admit I'm a little bit sort of out of the loop in the last 48 hours, but what seems to have happened is the, the general consensus is that Iran have effectively made a strike here that hasn't antagonized the U.S. any further, but that has allowed them to save face uh, because they haven't, they haven't been seen to do nothing, but they've also not sort of done something that is serious and that will, will um, escalate the situation. So at this point, it seems that it's quiescent down a little bit. There's certainly still room for things to, to go crazy, especially with Trump at the helm uh but um i was listening to a podcast this morning with uh ben rhodes on it and he was speaking about sort of what he thinks the strategy is and why this strike happened um from which side and he from the u.s yep um and like the whole so effectively the whole the whole deal with iran over the last few years has been the the nuclear deal um and for those who don't know, the nuclear deal, the, the original nuclear deal at least, was reached with Iran in uh, July of 2015 at a conference in Vienna. And it kind of, it was between Iran and the permanent members of the UN Nationals, or the UN Security Council, sorry. Um, and since then, Iran have stopped complying with that deal. And the U.S. have withdrawn from it. And that, that withdrawal happened during the Trump administration. Um, and basically the crux of the deal lies around Iran's ability to build nuclear weapons. Um, so without getting into, into the details, it effectively makes them get rid of their uranium stockpiles and controls the centrifuges that they have that are able to process uranium and enrich uranium um, and so they're only allowed to enrich uranium up to 3.67 percent um, which is effectively the limit of it's it's therefore usable in in power stations yeah in civilian applications but it can't really be used in nuclear weapons um, and then there's a whole complicated list of regulations around the centrifuges and they're allowed to enrich uranium in one plant but not in others and um, they're allowed to use certain designs of uh, these power plants so that they don't get too much enriched plutonium out of it uh, which could allow them to build nuclear weapons um, and and so th the deal was, was effectively scrapped by by the Trump administration coming and saying that they want a better deal, uh, that Obama effectively bungled it, and all of this stuff. Um, and then that sort of set the current state of affairs where we've got these sanctions on Iran, which are effectively pressure tactics to try and get them to come and agree to another deal. And so we saw those sanctions sort of step up in mid last year when the effectively the Iranians were cut off from world markets in a big way. And so that that sort of 
the whole strategy has been to press them to come to the negotiating table and allow the US to get a better deal. Um, and this, this strike just doesn't really fit into that whole thing because they've now pushed the, they've pushed, like they've, they've assassinated an Iranian official. Uh, like that, that's not, that doesn't seem diplomatically very smart. Uh, so I don't know quite why that decision was made. It, it doesn't, doesn't make a lot of sense. Yeah. And I, um, I don't know, like Trump said it was due to protecting like their own diplomats or citizens or whoever they were, um, Soleimani was meant to be a, a planning an attack on. But couldn't you at just the same time just inform those diplomats and sort of get them out of there and prevent Yeah, you would think pre- so, would prevent you? an attack that way as well? Yeah. I mean, you you would think so and like obviously we don't have all the information. Exactly, uh, yeah. But it still doesn't make a lot of sense to kill this guy. Yeah. Um and what was quite interesting was there was an NPR report about sort of the mood of the Iranian people, uh, especially this week. Um, and they, a couple of weeks ago, there were demonstrations where the Iranians were calling for the end of the current regime. And the Trump administration were cheering them on because that's a good thing for them to get rid of the current regime and sort of maybe get some a new regime in that's a bit more favorable to the US. But after this attack, there were demonstrations where people were calling, the Iranian people were calling for attacks on, on, the, um, on the US. And so it seems to have turned the sentiment of the Iranian people completely against the US, where just a few weeks ago they were perhaps more pro-US. Um, and so that's definitely surely, set there. Surely they would have back. known this, though. You surely think so? The, I don't yeah. understand, like, how the White House officials wouldn't have foreseen that happening. It's certainly possible that they did and they didn't care or that their agenda Maybe, yeah. is something different. Yeah. Um, like, really, there hasn't been much clarity out of the White House over why this, why this went down. Um, and so... We're all sort of left guessing uh, at at why they made the decision to to attack and kill Soleimani, and what their plan is from here. I I don't think you can discount the fact that it's very likely this week we're going to start to see that the beginnings of the impeachment trial, um, and so possibly that's a that's a factor. There's um, also this is something that's coming out of the Democrat camp, but there's possible that the um, they are trying to start a war effectively and they're trying to start a war maybe with a country that they see as not as much of a threat to start a war with because Americans are less likely to vote to change presidents during a war. Um, I don't know how much... <laughs> how much uh, credibility that theory holds. It may just be um, the the Democrats wishing a little bit, but it's certainly worth, worth thinking about the fact that if the war does happen, it definitely increases Trump's chances of getting reelected. Uh, and so, yeah, that, that's, that's kind of where we're at. There was actually, there was the, in... I th- there was a, a plane crash that happened. Yeah, I'm looking in, at that now. In Iraq that has been uh, now claimed by the Iraqi military as a mistake that they mistakenly shot down that plane. And several, you mean the Iran? Uh, hundred Iran, sorry, yeah. Yeah. Um, and the, that ha- there sev- obviously a hundred or so civilians died and that's a horrible, horrible thing. And so I don't know how that fits into the whole picture of, of this. Uh, but Who was on board, it, though? It. I don't know. Um, I didn't see anything sort of popping out that, the, uh, that they were, like, important people. Yeah. Um, I'm going to just bring something up here and see. I wonder how it's viewed in their sort of media. Um 
So apparently it has, protesters have speaks out against the Supreme Leader in response to deaths of Iranians in a disaster. So obviously there were Iranians on the plane. It was a Ukrainian, Ukrainian passenger plane with 176 people on board. Um, and so there has been, so on Saturday night, UK ambassador to Iran, Robert McCabe, was arrested during demonstrations in front of Amir Kabir University in Tehran for inciting the protesters. So, yeah, it looks like the the um, UK is now getting dragged into this. Obviously, the arrest of an ambassador is is a big deal. Um, the UK foreign, foreign secretary is saying that this is uh, a breach of international law. Um, and so I think that whether or not we end up in a war, we're definitely going to see some some level of unrest now in in uh, Iran. Um, so here in the Guardian's reports that there were 167 passengers and nine crew members on board, including 82 Iranians, at least 57 Canadians, 11 Ukrainians, and three Britons. What I don't understand is like, you know, they've just slapped human error on this. How can you accidentally shoot down uh, a plane with ballistic missiles that are targeted <laughs> yeah i, I like, don't i don't well, understand that at how, all how, how that, that how that's human yeah. error like what 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 else were they targeting like yes yeah, so were it was they... targeted by two surface air missiles three after three minutes sorry after taking off from an airport on the outskirts of tehran uh, it took to the air a few hours after Iran launched a barrage of ballistic missiles at U.S. targets in Iraq, and the military were braced for possible reprisals. So, I mean, there's, there's certainly the possibility that it popped up on radar and it wasn't... Uh, definitely, definitely could have been, yeah. It wasn't giving the right radar signal. So in in planes, there's a squawk box, um, and that effectively gives each plane a unique identifier on radar and in a lot of planes i don't know about say this plane specifically but in a lot of planes that is done via a uh, a forward number code and that gets inputted into one of the controls on the control panel but there is also a way to sort of obscure that and so you obscure your signature and it can happen uh accidentally so that may have been something that happened and given that it was just hours after that attack yeah it's got here that it said that it was at an altitude that made it look like it was a a hostile aircraft and that it turned towards the military site belonging to iran's revolutionary guard so Mm. and and i guess i mean maybe that signature was not visible to them I i don't know yeah i think that the um the the problem with this is that it could either be a complete accident or it could have been planned to do it this way so that it can believably see, be seen as a complete accident. But there's certainly a non-insignificant possibility that this was an act of belligerence yeah. by the Iranians. Um, and so I guess we'll, we'll have to see. I did see that uh, Qantas won't be flying over Iranian airspace until the conflict is resolved uh, and they announced that pretty pretty quickly i mean that's pretty smart uh, i think yeah yeah it is pretty smart because um, this is the same thing that happened remember there was that malaysian airlines plane back in was that the one that also got gosh. shot down yeah the one that got shot down and it was flying over ukraine uh during a time when you probably shouldn't have been flying over ukraine um uh, but they were and so that was supposedly a mistake as well um and so yeah i guess it, it will have to wait and see we see what happens here mm. um so yeah it'll again, need a, I've, it'll I've need a few more town, days to so. sort of bubble over and yeah uh, i'm sure we'll start to get a little bit more clarity going into this next week um and we'll we'll try to start understanding where this is going to lay out um like i said before it does seem that the Politico, at least, are saying that they think the the, the impeachment trial may start this week, uh, or at least proceedings to to start to begin it will will be this week. So 
that may take up some of the headlines as well. Hopefully, it will also take Trump away from Twitter. Um, and so he won't be able to... He's still got time in the morning. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, that the judges don't like to sit at the bench for long long periods of time. So, And he has his lunch break, I guess. Plenty of time to tweet how, a few things. How wild would that be if he's just sitting there tweeting like, while there's a trial <laughs> going on? Sure. I could just <laughs> see him getting frustrated at something and then that's that's happens in the trial and then tweeting it the following night. Yeah. <laughs> This is presidential harassment. Uh, I mean, it's he not going to go through anyway. This morning, so actually, it's a bit of a waste of time. He tweeted something this morning in Arabic. Did you see that? No. What the hell? I don't know what it said. I'm going to try. Um, Let's have a look. I'm going to see here. The Iranian government should allow human rights groups to monitor and report on the current reality of protests in the in the Iranian people. We should not see the peaceful killing of protesters again or the internet shut down. The world is watching. And that was tweeted in Persian. Yep. Um, I could imagine the, the first few people that seen that tweet were like, Trump's hacked. Someone's hacked his thing. <laughs> I, I saw it. I was scrolling through Twitter today, like this morning, and I saw it and just kind of kept scrolling. I didn't realize it was him. I thought... You know, sometimes you just get a random other language tweet yeah, in yeah. your feed and you just kind of scroll past. I didn't realize it was him at first. And I came back, I was like, oh, hang on. I know that mug. <laughs> uh, it's just it's just weird, isn't it? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think that it, it's, it's a really sad situation overall, but um, we'll, have to, we'll have to wait and see. Um, clo- closer to home, did you... Uh, catch Scott Morrison's interview this morning? No, I haven't. What was it about? So he gave an interview to the ABC. It was a long-form interview. It was about, about half an hour long. Um, and effectively, it was about the, the bushfires. Um, and um, so it's, I think it's the first time Scott Morrison has sat down in a long-form way since the crisis started. And... We we won't linger too long on the fires this week because we do have a couple of people coming on next week to talk about the fires who will have a bit more of an understanding of what's going on than us. Uh, but effectively, he was pressed on the response to the bushfires and whether he thinks that the the response has been appropriate and whether the um, whether the sort of uh, warnings given by different groups had been heeded um and he says that he does he he did admit that the the response is not ideal and there are things he could have handled better yeah but what he does say is that there has been a mischaracterization of of some of the things that the the government has done so one of the things was that the media have been reporting that there was a a risk framework that was tabled, I think, last year, early last year, and has then sat on a shelf gathering dust since then. Um, and what Scott Morrison says, basically, that's that's been mischaracterized and that that's more of a long-term framework. Um, he said that the the reality is that climate change is making seasons longer, it's making them hotter, um, it's more difficult to manage these sorts of the bushfires and and these sorts of things, and so there. What he kept what he kept saying is that there is a new normal uh, that we have to adapt to, and part of that is putting a longer term risk framework. And so that that risk framework is that was seen to have been tabled was never intended to be enacted very quickly. It was supposed to be a more long term thing. Um, and then the other part of what he said was that the this crisis has presented effectively a constitutional test um, in that a lot of people were calling for the federal government to be much more proactive in uh, providing support and assistance to the affected communities and to the firefighters. Yeah. And unfortunately, constitutionally, they weren't actually able to do so. Um, where you say, like, they, they've actually had constitutional lawyers working on this. And one of yeah, the right. moments in the interview was 
I forget his name. His name's Andrew something. Um, and he asked him directly, like, did you actually have to get constitutional advice on this? And Morrison says, like, yes, absolutely. This is an unprecedented situation. Um, and like the call-ups of the army reservists to go and help in an emergency like this has never happened before, to our knowledge at least. And so that is something that in a from a constitutional standpoint, because the, the call-outs of the reservists wasn't in response to a request from the states. It was in response, it, it was a proactive thing and saying, here is the support um, that you need, that if you need it, and uh, if you need more, then it will be provided. Yeah, And that's something that constitutionally, we, we run a federal system here. And so the states are supposed to dictate these sorts of things. Um, and so that was sort of one of the things that he said. Okay, that's interesting. There was, um, I saw a tweet out today from Kevin Rudd saying that in the Black, yeah. the Black Saturday ones in 2009, he said that he was putting together the reserves for that. I knew nothing about that's it. And that's the, that's the only video that I've seen. You'll, you could see it on his Twitter if you go over check, like check it out. But, um, yeah, I'm not yeah. too sure, um, about it so i'm gonna bring up kevin rudd now i'm just going to have a look yeah because i did i did watch it first thing this morning when i woke up and i was half asleep so okay so i won't watch the video right now but so apparently kevin rudd is he's disputing this he is basically saying that, that this is not the first time that um that reserves have been brought in or something okay but i don't know so, why he's sort of uh, leaving it until now because it's been it's sort of been widely mentioned that this is the first time that reserves have ever been used yeah. and it's been like that for a few weeks now or a couple of weeks so i don't know why he's left it till now to sort of put a statement out on twitter about it but yeah so i guess we'll have to wait and see um i will do a little bit more uh i will do a little bit more research into that and maybe report back next week about it um but then the other the sort of second half of the interview was about the morrison government climate policy because that's something that has been widely criticized um and there's been a level of um what's a a good way to put this um there's been a level of of the left and the leftist media sort of being very dramatic about the fact that Scott Morrison is a climate change denier and he doesn't listen to the scientists and but also it's a very like the leftist media though as well has also like they 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 are like while these are the the worst bushfires we've had they are sort of trying to make them seem worse as worse than what they are yeah on top of yeah. that and there was a a gross example of that earlier this week i don't know if they ended up retracting it actually but the ABC tweeted a photo of the fires uh, as a photo of a map of Australia superimposed upon a map of the US with sort of red spots where supposedly there are fires. And it was just grossly wrong. Um, they had like a massive strip up the middle of... Yeah, like, it indicated across that... the middle of Australia. It indicated that a third of Australia was on fire. Yeah. Which is just incorrect. Which is, it's just, yeah, it's just wrong. Um, now, I think what they will say is that, well, yeah, there are fires in those areas and that because it's zoomed out, they put the spot on there. And it, but it was incorrect. Like it was just, it was just wrong. Um, and so this, it plays into the idea that Scott Morrison is just grossly incompetent in terms of climate policy. Um, and so he was challenged on that this morning and he was able to speak to it. Um, and so basically the response, the, the sort of two key things that came out of it is that there, um, there will be, uh, or Morrison will bring a proposal to hold a royal commission into the cause of the bushfires to cabinet. Um, and that will happen basically once parliament comes back. Um, and that, there are three keys to the climate change policy within the within the Morrison government, and that is that the first is emissions reduction. 
which there is the they are planning to meet and beat he kept saying the emissions reduction uh, target i want to come back to that um, and then he also said that we need to increase our resilience to emergencies like this so that means anything from floods to droughts to cyclones and bushfires um, and that encompasses a whole range of things like where do we build homes where do we build dams where do we uh like how do we manage our water system and our power grid and all of these sorts of things um and then the last part was adaptation to the new normal which is what they kept saying uh that climate change is providing to us and so i think before we get into the discussion over whether the policies are appropriate or whatnot i think that we have to dispel this myth that he's a climate change denier. I mean, he's certainly not. Um, he definitely, I mean, he, he clearly says, well, we are moving into a period of hotter and hotter and longer summers and drier uh, summers. And that is partly caused by climate change. And I think that is, uh, if not the correct uh, response, it is the, uh, the appropriate response. I think that um, we need to be careful not to claim that everything is climate change and that every storm and every fire and every drought is caused by climate change and is solely caused by humans because that's not true um but that it it's a significant contributing factor um and then the other thing that he said was that he was elected on a certain climate policy and he intends to continue with that policy um and i think that again is a very responsible thing to do yeah, exactly. I mean, if you do have like some of the media and some of the people shouting the loudest, it still doesn't indicate the what the majority of the Australians want. Just because they're the loudest and you're hearing the most of it doesn't really mean that, you know, the majority actually want that to go ahead. So I think it's a, a smart idea to sort of stick to the policies that you've sort of decided on when you were being elected, as opposed to sort well, of... Oh, I mean, and... And this doing a 180. Is a, well, that, that's, a democrat, that's a democratic thing to do. He was elected on certain policies, and to flip-flop on those policies would be ridiculous. Um, that, that wouldn't be a democracy at that point. Um, and so uh, that's what he has to do. That is what he's been mandated to do. By the way, the ABC did uh, withdraw that map. Oh, did they? Yep, and then they re-updated it with the actual map of Australia's fires. And how different did that look? I'll, I'll, show, I'll show you. I'll put it in the doc. Um, and so it might be worth getting into some of the, uh, the specifics on, on the climate policy. Um, he did say that it is, it is sort of largely, it's a, it's, it's a total policy. It's not just focused on emissions. Okay, yeah, that's much better. I don't know how they got that... Um, how they got that big stripe up the middle, but that was just terrible. It's terrible when you're getting donations from overseas as well. Like, again, it is the worst bushfire we've ever had, but making it out that it's worse, you're going to attract obviously more donations. Um, yeah. The the but other I think thing that it I- does, it does more damage to the um, it does more damage to the climate change like the the progressive climate change agenda by making these sorts of claims. Um, I just like saw it, another... It doesn't... Yeah. Sorry, just to interrupt. I just saw... It's it's um, just another little thing here on the fires. It's not related to anything of the climate change or anything, but they've, um, they've started dumping carrots and stuff out of helicopters. <laughs> really? It's called Operation Rock Wallaby. <laughs> oh, my God. And they're dumping, like, tons of food into the forest for any animals that sort of need carrots. <laughs> yeah. Oh, That's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. So, this is a photo of him, like, just tipping carrots out of a helicopter. Uh, well, I guess it makes sense, like, because all the, all the food matter has been yeah. has been burnt up at this point, so... Yeah, exactly. Uh, and, and this is part of, like, I guess that the response that people don't see is that there there is the wildlife to think about and there is the... Um, there, there, there's like the wildlife. There's all the the fauna, the flora. Sorry, there's the uh, rebuilding effort now, and it's the response that people don't see. And while part of the response was certainly bungled, the um, 
the holiday to Hawaii was was bad. Um, I do think that the media is is being a little bit unfair um, in in their treatment of Scott Morrison over this whole thing, um, and we we spoke about that last week, um, and certainly on on this morning's on this morning's interview, they like he, when he, when he brought up the the uh, the holiday to Hawaii, he said, well. You were you're a previous, uh, I think he was the CEO or whatever of Tourism Australia. Like, is is Australia not good enough for you to holiday in? <laughs> and I was like, well, is that what he said? Is this is this yeah? What? I was like, is this relevant? I I don't I don't think it's relevant to like clearly it was a mistake to go and holiday out, and he's admitted that it was a mistake. Like, I don't think we need to try to in, indict him on not loving Australia enough. Um, it just seems it seems like we're scrapping at anything to try and drag Morrison down, and it's just, it's, it's all it's going to do is it's, it's not going to change the opinion of anyone who supports Morrison. It's just going to make them think, well, you're being ridiculous. Mm, exactly. Um, and yeah, he he asked that. And he also asked, well, do you think that the whole day was handled incorrectly? And he, Morrison, I think I'd, I'd have to disagree with Morrison here that he said, well, it was handled just like all the other holidays have been handled. And so he thinks that it was fine, but it will change. And he basically said that he texted Anthony Albanese to say that he was leaving the country and that, uh, like how things were going to happen while he was away. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what he has done on previous occasions when he's left the country. But in future, it will be handled in a different way. And I don't know the specifics of how, of how this happened. But when the news broke that Morrison was in Hawaii, there was a period where people were like, oh, well, he's not in Australia. Where is he? Yada, yada. Like, wouldn't Anthony Albanese have known? And so why didn't Anthony Albanese say anything? Like this, this is some, like the issue that I have is that the government worked, and to Labour's great credit, they haven't been attacking Scott Morrison. Like there's been the odd person who have come out and and attacked him on Twitter and whatnot, but overall, the yeah yeah for the most part, the party hasn't been attacking him, and I think that this is the the point that we need to be focusing on is that the the government has been doing a job that hasn't actually been that terrible. Like, if we get beyond the politics, there this could have been a lot worse. Um, and it reminds me of, like, I've read a few books about the GFC. I've read Tim Geithner's book particularly, where he writes quite a bit about how he was an ambassador in the media for bailing out certain banks, and every move he made was apparently wrong. In, in the media. And he says that, well, it's one of these sort of horrible situations where, and the same thing happened to Kevin Rudd during the GFC, is that if you avoid a total catastrophe, you'll never be praised for it, but you'll be lambasted for allowing something to happen. Because if it, if you manage to avoid it, then nobody knows how bad it could have been. What's I think this the word is the part for that again? There's a word for that. I'm not sure. I know you've mentioned it before. Um, yeah, I'm not sure what the word for that is. Mm. It's like what happens when like you, you prevent a potential future, um, but you don't actually know what was actually going to happen. But yeah. Yeah. But you kind of get lambasted for it uh, because nobody knows how bad it poss- like could possibly have been. And I think that there's an element of that happening here where we, we don't know really how bad it could have been. We just know how bad it is, and obviously it's, it's horrific. But yeah, we don't we don't know, and so I think we need to we need to give the Morrison government some credit at least, and we need to get off these political we need to like get off the political benches and just like actually realize that things are more complex than left and right. And I think I think that the the left is a bit more egregious in in seeing things that way. I think that's why I keep they keep losing elections but like uh, i guess um we'll we'll see i think that information 
will come out if the if this royal commission happens. Um, like if if it'll come out that actually the government did do these things and this was the advice that was given because that's what Morrison was saying is that he he followed the advice given by the current fire chiefs and so he doesn't think that the government's preparation for the season was inappropriate and I I guess that's that's something we're going to have to wait to see if there's a royal commission um, what information was actually given and then what the response actually was. So would the royal um, commission be purely into the, poli- the the politics of it? I don't know if it'll be just in the politics of it, but it will be into the the causes of what made this fire season so bad and what could have been done to to stop it. And I guess the like the royal commission is supposed to provide recommendations to governments over policy changes. Um and so I guess we'll it should be used as a way to to it, it should be an an admission by Morrison that this what has happened isn't ideal, um, and there there are possibly things that have happened that are that should be looked at and should be understood where the failings were, and that is beyond the capabilities of the government itself and the cabinet to to find, and it should be done in a much broader and more public context. I was going to say, when's that Royal Commission into the nursing homes and aged care? Um, that's already taking place, isn't it? Is it taking place right now? Because um, I haven't seen a big on it, that's care. all. Um, it began mid-January 2019 with the final reports uh, due on 12 November 2020. So it's still going to go for the next Two year. Two years. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, that's the other thing with the Royal Commission, likely something that's going to be picked up on by the the sort of leftist media is that the Royal Commission is going to take far too long. We need something that's going to happen a bit quicker and that we're going to get that we're going to get answers quicker before before effectively next year's fire season. Mm-hmm. And that's certainly a, a valid concern. I'll be interested to see how that gets uh gets dealt with um in some other news um this week 538 released their uh, presidential prime the democratic primary model that they've been working on so their uh, data analysis website um it's at 538.com um, you spell spell out the numbers and they have built this this democratic primary forecast model goes into a ton of detail like it's very 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 detailed and trying to forecast who's going to win each state and who's going to win the overall primary um, because we are now getting close the first Iowa vote happened uh, in the very first week of February and then we've got kind of five months of voting or f- four months of voting until the the um uh, the party uh, What's it called? I'm forgetting what it's called. The party. Oh, God. Ah, the, the convention. Sorry. <laughs> Completely missed it there. Um, the, yeah, the convention. Uh, so we've got about four months to go, four and a half months to go until the convention. And so, yeah, they're starting to do all their forecasting now. So you can go on uh, projects.538.com forward slash 2020 primary forecast. And currently... Joe Biden is sitting with a two in five chance of winning a majority of the uh, delegates. Uh, Sanders has one in four. No one, there's a one in seven chance of no one getting a majority. One in eight chance of Warren getting it. One in 10 chance of Buttigieg getting it. And a 2% chance of anyone else getting it. Um, And so... I, they, they have a podcast, 538 have a podcast, and Nate Silver went on there um, yesterday, I think, to explain what the the model is. And effectively, because it's the first time they've built one of these models, um, and it's a very complex sort of a model to build, um, it's only sort of forecasting up until the day before the convention. And so it's not trying to say who will get the nomination, it is trying to say who will get the delegates and 
generally if a candidate gets majority of the delegates they will then get the nomination but that is not always true um and there is a fairly large chance um they are saying that there's a a one in seven chance or 14 percent that that no one gets a majority in which case there will be a contested election and they'll have to make speeches and whatnot Mm, in order to win the nomination um and so yeah i'd recommend people go and have a look at that um you can play with all sorts of settings and see see how different things affect affect the model and and all of that so that's going to be the first step of this what's going to be a long year of election coverage so um i think that that's what i one of the things i'm going to use to stay on top of things i'm going to try to stay away from a lot of the politics and stuff get up on the stats yeah yeah no it'll be cool to watch um was there anything else you wanted to talk about today um again like i just noticed the lithium stocks are back up off their lows again but it's uh but it's industry-wide it's all of the stocks are pretty much rallying at the moment so um definitely one just to sort of keep on the radar um sort of going into 2020 yeah do you think that we'll see a bit of a rally through 2020 then um well depends like the none of the pricing has really improved yet in in the product that they're selling so but i mean the market so does just the stocks that's sort of yeah but the up, market the lithium itself yeah but i mean that the market will rally before the the commodity or the product that they sell first anyway so i wonder if once the rally's already happened then does the price increase will we see it will we see it further into the year like six months down the line or something and by that by that time it's already been priced in um but it's it's so definitely it'll be interesting to watch it's definitely you know part of the sentiment returning from like tesla's most recent rally yeah like yeah not, definitely like, do you think not, that not as... too much has changed for tesla like everything is already sort of known what was known in the when it was about 300 is no real different to what was known now like everyone knew about the gigafactory 3 plant people assumed that it was going to be you know quicker and get up and running a lot quicker than a lot of the others um but it's yeah it's it's funny in the way it works how just a share price increase um the narrative sort of changes with it yeah well there's definitely been a lot more positivity around tesla recently um what was happening at the shanghai gigafactory i saw musk was dancing and, <laughs> like like what what was happening there? I didn't really read into it. Um it was just it was just the the ceremony for the 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 first few model 3s. Yeah. Um and I don't know, it's sort of I guess it's like something to do with culture over there like they they're obviously a very big fan of Musk and um I guess he was kind of jeeing up the crowd a little bit by getting his boogie on. Um, <laughs> yeah. It was it was pretty funny. Like I watched a few things from like Jim Cramer and Jim Cramer was like, I don't care if he was dancing naked. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It, it wouldn't matter. Like, um, yeah, yeah it was, no, it was, it was just, I think it was just more jeeing up the crowd uh, when the when the music came on. Seems like a better uh, outcome at that event than the Cybertruck event though. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Yeah. Um, so, um I think it'll be they're due to release earnings fairly soon, aren't they? I'm not up I to date with the when the next earnings of will be. Um, when was? Because they released their sort of Q3 earnings were on October 23rd, so yeah, they must be due to release full year full year results soon. Um, so that will be that certainly will be interesting. Yeah, I mean, people can kind of guess anyway from like some of their delivery numbers in their yeah. vehicles because they've already been released anyway it'll yeah, just depend on sort of numbers weren't they yeah yeah it, it'll just sort of be what what um what sort of comes out of their other, other businesses as well like how's their energy yeah. storage going how's their solar because uh, we sort of it'll haven't really, really got anything good on that. for them if they're able to turn a profit now and turn a nice like a good solid profit yeah yeah i mean that would see the stock rally i can imagine a little bit further yeah um yeah i don't know how much further it's pretty it's, it's pretty, pretty extended at this it's point it's pretty it's it? pretty far up there um 478 I, at the moment i don't know with with the way that the 
the stock is looking at the moment. Yeah, I know. <laughs> With the way that the stock's looking at the moment, I can see, I can very much see Tesla coming back to, you know, I don't know, at least 400s, like low 400s. Um, yeah, I think it's got to come back to earth at some point. There's there's definitely a lot of optimism and short covering in this yeah, rally. It just needs, yeah, it just needs to normalize a little bit. Um, obviously, the trajectory it's on can't continue. Otherwise, no. you know, we'll be at $1,000 in two months' time. <laughs> yeah. So, to say there's obviously got to be a, a, a section soon where it's got to dip and normalize and people are going to take profits, obviously, which will sort of slow yeah. the stock down a bit. But, um, yeah, yeah, and that's I think the- it's just bleeding over into into some of the other stocks. Um, like it was Gan- Ganfang Lithium, which is like, yeah, premium sort of lithium company dealing in the chemicals like the battery grade chemicals that was september that was at nine dollars and now it's trading at 21 dollars. oh wow that's like doubled yeah yeah so that that's that's seen the most i i would say that's been the biggest rally and the most sustained rally and most consistent it's kind of been like a straight line um yeah but we're starting to see that bleed over into some of the other stocks now as well um yeah so i can expect you know a bit of a a bit of a rally and then it kind of needs just that price increase to sort of kick things off again and then yeah yeah i think that they need to make well they can't really do anything about it but if these results that come out this month aren't good uh, the stock's going to come crashing back down to earth pretty quickly um like there's a lot of downside risk at this point in the stock uh, just because it's had like a basically a hundred percent rally in yeah. the last three months or so. I mean, it's it's difficult to be buying up here. Like I don't know. Yeah. Like, like me it was personally, at I wouldn't be. in at the end of August, it was down like two hundred and ten dollars, and it's now up like almost hitting five hundred. So, uh, yeah, there's definitely a lot of downside risk there that could be taken away if there's a good earnings announcement now. I think that it'll provide sort of a nice confirmation of that and we may see it move higher. Uh, but um, if it's not good, it'll come back down to earth a little bit. Uh, it'll, yeah, it'll be interesting to watch that. You'll be busy around the earnings, earnings release. <laughs> you betcha. <laughs> I'll, be, yep. I'll be pushing out a lot of content, but yeah, I've got a few it was... few mm-hmm. of mine now already, so got to get those yep. out. Yeah, that'll be that'll be good to watch. I think we might see if we can bring Brandon on around that time as well. Yeah. Oh, yeah, um, that's true. He did say that he'd be interested in coming on after that. Yeah. And then they're also running a like sort of powertrain and battery day at some point in the near future as well. So yeah. it'll be interesting yep. to see if they come up with anything sort of revolutionary or groundbreaking there. Yeah, well, I mean, there's speculation. I've seen it on... Um, Gali's channel um speculation of the the million mile battery or the yeah essentially million miles or um for energy storage in the paper it says 20 years lifetime wow so like like never charge it no 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 no. so like in terms of the amount of cycles that you would expect to get okay a million mile yeah so the the lifetime before it's the the battery sort of degrades um yeah so it was a million miles for the um the car or 20 years lifetime for a grid scale sort of battery okay uh, which would be huge um that would be massive yeah because i can um, imagine then once that happens uh, people would be more likely to put battery packs on their houses yeah because at the moment it's the like cars how- specifically for the cars it kind of takes away some of that i don't my my boss at work, that is one of his primary concerns is that you buy a car and if in three years the battery's not really cutting it anymore, then like, yeah, what's exactly. the point of buying the car? Um, but if they can, yeah, quell those concerns of having uh, that battery degrade, then it'll, like, I don't, I don't want to say it, like that's the turning point, but it's certainly another thing, another worry that will have been sorted out. Yeah. There's certain things that need to be addressed and there definitely is to be more, I don't know, education or something around it before, I don't know, it's more well known of how, like, 
what they're capable of. Like I saw a stat yeah. um, when I was doing some of my research. Um, now, it was pretty high. I'm just going to pull this off the top of my head, but it was about 50 to 70% of Americans didn't think that you could drive through a car wash with an electric vehicle. Well, I would certainly think twice about it. And I mean, intuitively, you know, it's... Yeah. It's you know, definitely not, something that I would not like put, double check. You're not going to put your laptop through a car wash, are you? You know, like no. in terms, it would fry the battery essentially. Like you're not going to put your phone through water. You're not going to put your battery, yeah, sorry, your laptop through water. Um, so yeah. why is that any different for a vehicle? You know, obviously, yeah. Should I be should I be washing my car? Like, but yeah. things like that eventually, um, as eventually as a, they'll be quelled. Yeah, as they become more widespread and um, yeah, yeah, maybe it'll be interesting I, to see sort of what comes out of the battery the day. Other, I was thinking about it the other day and I may have listened to a podcast and they brought it up. It's like, even if I want to buy a Tesla right now, I don't think it would work particularly well. Like I live in an apartment and so there's no way I'd be able to charge it overnight and there's no way I'd be able to install a charger Yeah. in the apartment building. And so that's definitely a consideration Exactly. For the it's, uptake of electric vehicles, um, like you would have to go and charge it somewhere. Uh, and I mean, that's not, so, that's not a huge issue. Yeah, but, but you want to be able to charge it. And I mean, a lot of people live in apartments as well. Like, it's not something I've thought about before. Yeah, and especially if you're renting, say, as well. Um, you're obviously not allowed to make any alterations. Like, say, now, like me now, like I'm living in a house, I'm not living in an apartment. Um, but if I wanted an electric vehicle, I couldn't get one anyway because, you know, well, I could get one, but it's not going to, I'm not going to be able to charge it at my home address. I'd have to take yeah. it to a, a supercharger somewhere um, and just do it there. But again, like you yeah. said, it's not a massive deal, but it, it's definitely, I would definitely think twice about getting it if there was more hassle. You know, yeah, it's definitely a consideration, especially given that if you're, if that's the case and you're you're having to go somewhere to charge it, you're probably going to run the battery down a fair bit before you go and do that. And then it becomes an event in your day to go and, well, I'm going to go charge my car now. And you go over to the charger and you spend like half an hour, 45 minutes there charging. Like it's a, a different way of using the car. Like the big sort of draw of an electric car from a lifestyle standpoint, if you can put a charger into your garage, is that you never have to go to a petrol station again. Mm-hmm. And you can just exactly you can just hang out and like you charge it every night and then you don't have to think about it and like that's a big draw in my opinion mm-hmm. um, and it's something that if it's it's certainly a big uh, score against the electric vehicle if you can't do that because then it becomes more inconvenient for you to have the electric vehicle. Yeah, I saw on Twitter today. Um Apparently in the US, there's a bit of vandalism vandalism going around to Tesla vehicles. Oh, really? Yeah. So, I don't know if it's like out of spite or jealousy or what it what it is. But um, yeah, plenty of people are going around and sort of vandalizing Teslas. Like I saw a video of one, like when the sentry mode turned on and there was um, a car that's, I think it had three, three guys in it or something. Um, yeah. First of all, they tried to pull out the charging cable. Um, you know, just being dicks. But then they also, once it was locked, they tried to kick it out of the vehicle. And, you know, they just started kicking the car and eventually the car alarm went off. But um, yeah, apparently it's happening across across the US. Um, well, yeah, I think it's something that's going to happen. But I think that the like there are massive plans across all car manufacturers now to start creating EVs. And I think that that's going to mean that the uptake in EVs is going to be uh, uh, much faster now as different cars, there's different options for EVs. People will become more educated about them. But the thing with the Tesla is you've got to make the decision to go and want to buy a Tesla and then you're going to have to go and learn about the Tesla. Uh, whereas if there's just an electric vehicle in sort of the car yard and you're going to buy a new car and the salesman can can educate you on it just because it's there yeah um, 
you're going to just see more people sort of being won over by the EV uh, in that context because they're not having to go out of their way to sort of learn about the EV. They're just yeah, going to definitely. the car yard to buy a car. Yeah. So I definitely, sort of I definitely want to take one point. for a test drive. Yeah, I'm desperate to. It'd be okay, so cool. <laughs> my friend, he, he did it a while back and um, he was like, you have to you have to take one for a test drive. I was like, yeah. do you have to like, you know, have the intention of buying it? He's like, no. <laughs> like, you just go there and ask for a test drive. And um, yeah, they'll throw you in the car. So I'll definitely... Uh, there's one up near me uh, where I work. I might might have to go out there and uh, take one for a spin. <laughs> Try not to kill yourself. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That'd be cool. Anyway, I'm going to have to cut this one short. Uh, yeah, that's cool. got some people arriving in a little bit. So, no um, yeah, uh, that was a good chat nonetheless. And next week, we'll, uh, we're having a few people on to have a chat about the fires.